Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Odell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. What's going on, man? Um, you know, I've been watching a lot of playoff baseball, so um, I'm, I'm a little antsy still, Yep. but I think I'm going to make it through it. We got some big games uh, again. You know, last time we recorded one of these, the Braves had just won a playoff game. Uh, the Braves had just won another playoff game and we were one game from the world series. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully we don't look back on this and feel terrible, but anyway, so today's guest was uh, Alexis McGuffin. She's the director of business development and a VP at Suffolk construction. And it was a pretty interesting talk. We talked about her career in BDC, you know, in New York and how um, her career has sort of moved her into a business development role we also talked about their boost program, which was a really cool thing to listen about um, is more of an incubator for innovative ideas. And we kind of touched on how uh, they approach innovation from a culture perspective. What'd you think? I thought, um, you know, for those who love to hear us talk about the culture of the industry in general, as well as, you know, trying to foster a culture of innovation, you know, whose responsibility is it to be innovative? Where does that come from? Um, this is the episode for you. You know, this is just another one of those in a long line that we've done because it's, you know, such a hot topic right now. And, you know, the only way that we're going to push forward is, you know, continuously talking about things like this, um, you know, the culture, as well as, just making sure that we're always focused on trying to get better. You know, it, it's at the end of the day, it's about building a great building, but the process that goes into that, there's a lot of things that can improve. Um, and Alexis and Suffolk, you know, I think they're on the cutting edge and uh, you know, I, I, I can't wait for people to hear this one. Yeah, it was cool to even hear about, um, you know, they have Suffolk Technologies and Suffolk Capital and sort of different arms to their business that all tackle different things. So it was a, it was a pretty cool talk and it was interesting to hear from her perspective. So I hope you get to listen to it, enjoy and check back for more. Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Alexis McGuffin. She's the Director of Business Development and a VP at Suffolk Construction. How are you doing, Alexis? Doing great. How are you doing? Awesome. We're very happy to have you. Um, you know, as the construction representative on the podcast, you know, I try to load us up on construction people so we can hear, you know, that perspective. Um, so with all of our guests on the podcasts, um, one of the things that we'd like to do is have them walk through the arc of their career and what got you to the point that you're at now. Um, Cause I know we have a lot of listeners who are at very different points in their career and kind of trying to figure out what that next step is. So can you kind of describe what your path has been like and you know, what, what's led you to this point? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's great to be here with you guys today. So I, uh, I guess I'll start with school. Um, so my started with a bachelor's of science in digital arts and sciences engineering, which is like software with a digital arts and media focus. And then I went into architecture and then finished master's in construction management. And at the time, 
many people in my life, including my father, were like, what are you doing? Like, you're all over the place. Um, from there, I moved to Washington, D.C., and I started out in project management with um, what was then called Bovis Lend-Lease Construction. Um, and I was in operations project management for about five years, did um, everything from high-rise residential, um, commercial office, corn shell. And I also worked um, on the mall for the Smithsonian for, for a bit. And then I was actually thinking about exiting the industry and BIM and BDC. Um, so virtual design and construction started happening. And I thought, oh, you know, this is really exciting. Um, new challenge kind of ties in a lot of, um, you know, my loves of tech and my, um, my education. So I kind of talked my way into that group. Um, so that was maybe like 2009. Um, so I started doing BIM and BDC for the Washington DC office as kind of a lone wolf. So we were a shared service across the US as well. So I did projects in um, Chicago and Boston, did some training programs nationally for the group, um, really loved it. And then in 2013, I moved to New York. And, at, um, at, and then soon after that, I took over uh, management of the BDC group, which covered the Northeast. And my time there, I, I sort of took the BDC group and started to evolve it into more of a digital engineering group. So we kind of did all things, including piloting new tech and not just stuff related to, to modeling um, and took on reality capture and VR and just kind of all stuff. It was like a little kind of incubator group, a little felt like a little tech startup within a large organization. It was a lot of fun, um, worked with some really great people. And in that role, um, a lot of my time at first was spent kind of internal sales. You know, when I first got to New York, I was told you'll never have been on a high rise residential job. It's like, just wait. So um, I did a lot of internal sales, convincing people with the benefits and trying to understand people's, you know, pain points and like what that kept them up at night and seeing how tech technology could solve their problems and help bring, you know, clarity and, and benefits to their jobs, right? So I did that. And then it started, you know, I was going to project interviews with clients, you know, as the tech representative, I was meeting with clients to convince, you know, to talk to them about the value prop around technology and BC. Um, and so it became more and more external and more and more about sales and becoming a trusted, you know, consultant, trusted partner to our clients. Um, and then I had a baby. And when I came back from maternity leave, um, the head of the office at the time had asked me to help out with business development. And so that's kind of how I went into sales. I still um, helped on the tech side, uh, kind of leading strategy. Um, and then really kind of focused on most of my time and building the brand, getting visible, building out new markets for, um, for Lendlease, my previous employer. And then last fall, winter, um, you know, I was approached by Sophic. I had always been aware of the brand and I felt the, brand, the brand was very innovative, um, tech focused. It really resonated with me. And there was an opportunity to come join as the director of business development for Suffolk. So I just, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Great firm, um, great people. And in addition to that, an opportunity to really grow a business in New York. Um, and so there's just so many kind of parts and pieces that really made a compelling you know, reason for me to make the move. We had a previous guest on who did construction in New York. Um, you might know her, Bianca Hotier-Corey. I do. Yes. Um, yeah. 
and you know she kind of described what it was like um doing construction you know in new york and i know we said it this way we're like what was it like to you know help build the big apple and i'm sure it was very you know hectic with deliveries and things like that but um could you tell us about your experience with construction in uh new york city sure um so seeing that i was in dc um from like 2006 to 2013, um, coming to New York, very different, especially because in DC, you know, when I started in DC, I worked, my firm was mostly all negotiated work and it wasn't, wasn't too diversified. And so when the GFC hit, everything changed, right? It was, it was a hard bid market. Everything was, you know, low bid. It was really difficult. Nothing was negotiated anymore. Um, you had to be diversified before the crisis, the economic crisis, right? So, you know, we're sitting in war rooms, right? With like phones and making last minute, you know, decisions on <laughs> price and, and whatnot and big board, you know, up ahead. And so when I came to New York, I mean, the biggest difference I noticed right away was the logistics, right? So you need an entire logistics department, department up here in the city. It's completely different figuring out how to build these amazing complex projects on the streets of Manhattan right? Like it's hard enough to drive across town, right? Like how do you get everything just in time with zero lay down? So that was really interesting. And, and my team on the VDC side, that was a really important part of what we did was modeling and doing kinematic studies for D and really describing like how we're going to get this done. It's really um, valuable to be able to visualize that to the entire team in terms of you know, understanding, validating schedule, as well as, um, you know, just building confidence and also explaining how we're going to handle things from a safety point of view. So that was very different. Um, <clears throat> this is a small town, right? It's like a global international city. Everybody knows each other. Um, it's, you know, it's all about relationships. Um, you know, it's, it's really like, you know, there's a lot of emphasis put on like, how long have you been a New York builder? Um, I know there's other, you know, very parochial cities in the New York. It's very tribal here. Um, so navigating that and understanding the landscape was something, you know, definitely to learn and understanding all the relationships there. Um, I mean, I think, you know, those would be kind of probably the most significant differences I saw when I moved up here. You mentioned um, when you you started kind of in the VDC role, um, well, a couple of things, you know, one kind of what what was it really that attracted you to that role? But then also you mentioned sort of treating that group as a small beginning incubator, small sort of tech startup. I guess my thought is what, what inspired you want to get more on the VDC side, but to treat it like an incubator or sort of bring in some of those sort of thoughts as to, to how to handle the technology. I wanted to get into VDC because I liked the challenge um, and the, the part of it that was like a complex puzzle to put together. And I also found the challenge of selling it even internally um, really exciting. And because um, I believed in it, right? So I believed in what I was selling and to convince people of the power of it was something that really drew me to it. Um, and just all the different kind of parts and pieces. So I'm, I'm, I'm building, but there's a big human factor, especially in the beginning, which I know some of your guests have talked about is bringing, you know, convincing people to do something that they've never done before, right? I mean, especially in New York, it's like, show me you've done this or built this five times successfully before I let you do it for me, right? Before I will 
say yes and, and pay for it. So that part, there was always um, a learning and training part component to my job. I was always teaching people things. Um, and also because, you know, this kind of, at least, you know, my firm was started around when we were having a global financial crisis. Like it was kind of a scary place to be in if you weren't sure where you're going to basically fill your hours to. So it was like, it was like this exciting startup within a, in a company. And so it just kind of really spoke to like my passion of, or like it made me passionate and excited about it and putting together a complex, really hard puzzle with all these, you know, all these different um, competing factors. And then when I, when I had people, you know, working on my team, you know, to be perfectly honest, I had been in, you know, coordinating jobs and doing clash detection a lot. And I knew I didn't want to do that forever. And I knew that the good people weren't going to do that forever. And I could see where we could slowly build an army of basically Navis works jockeys, right? And that that's not a great career path. It's something that is like a baseline skill set you need to know how to do. Um, but I believe eventually the model will be the contract document and that everyone will need to be able to use the model in the way that they use drawings today. So no one needs to be like a tech master or a BIM master, but if you read drawings to take off quantities, eventually you're gonna have to do that from the model. And so I really, right, and I'm not unique in this, but we need to push those skill sets out to the project teams and enable BIM savvy project teams, right? And so I kind of saw this pathway where if I wanna keep my best people and I had some really great, highly technically skilled people on my team and also keep the team lean and not have 30 BIM coordinators who at one point I might have to lay off, right? Depending on the market. It was, let's build out a, a VDC strategy or a tech strategy um, that will pull the company forward, keep us leading edge, and also build out some really kind of interesting career paths for people to continue to kind of grow their skill set. Um, and that one of the things we did was was reality capture, right? We brought laser scanning in house. Um, you know, first we would outsource it. We brought it in house. We did a lot of innovation around meshing and things like that, and that kept the people on my team excited. So I really saw it as the only way to survive. I, mean, I don't want to keep hiring BIM coordinators, you know, and how do I keep the, the company moving forward? So it just kind of, you know, evolved into a niche space that sits between operations and IT. We did everything that those two groups couldn't cover. It does seem like the, the resume of a current worker versus even a couple of years ago is changing. I mean, we do a lot internally with computational design and, and we see architecture firms are questioning, do we hire programmers or, you know, what maybe, so, I mean, do you, I guess you see that a lot as well, even on just the VDC as a whole, that just the skill set that we're looking for is starting to evolve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the programming component is important now and you can do that a couple of different ways, right? You can hire that in house, you can outsource that, but either way you need someone who understands it and who knows how to scope and buy it and manage it or do it themselves. So I think there's options there, but when, you know, even years ago when we were doing, you know, when we did our first um, uh, VR mock-up of an operating room and we did it, you know, on a gaming platform. So it was interactive. Um, we had to do custom VR programming, right? And it's like, you either need someone who can do that or who knows what they need and can buy it, right? You need, you need some of that or else you're just kind of stuck in your lane, right? There's no, there's no space to kind of innovate in between, uh, you know, the typical deliverables. 
I, I really like how you mentioned, you know, making the model, the contract document, because I've been a part of jobs where there was no modeling. And I've been part of jobs where if it's not in the model and you're in the way of somebody who is, you've got to take it down, which I personally prefer the latter, especially whenever you're doing prefabrication and things like that. But how far do you think we are into actually having the model be like the contract document? I know we've kind of talked about blockchain and AEC um, and how that can be implemented. And I think that would be kind of the application for making the model, the contract document. Um, but how far along do you think we are in that? And like, do you think that's something that's already happening or something that's going to happen in the next few years or maybe never? <laughs> um, it's happening in places. And I think that we should probably talk about, talk about it in market sectors and with clients. Um, I think, you know, the leaders we've have always been life sciences, like real life sciences, pharmaceutical manufacturing, healthcare, institutional, um, and now like right tech, just because that's kind of their culture and how they operate, you know, they are much further along, right? So they are willing to invest in that. That is their, that's how they do business. That's their brand, right? So why would you, right? And they're like that. They've been like that about safety. Why would you like for pharmaceutical build a building that is supposed that is, is existing to save lives and has the best technology within it, why would you do that unsafely and with paper, right? So I, in, those, in those areas, we see model-led um, projects, also like really big kind of like international infrastructure projects, we see that. But all the way on the other side, you know, with some private developers and, um, you know, different product types, like, uh, you know, multifamily and that type of thing is a lot further behind. Right. So you've kind of got the got, got a spread there and we might always have the spread. <laughs> there always will probably be some drawings on the two dates, unfortunately. Those last holdouts, you know, a couple of times now you've mentioned um, strategy and how you have whether you're part of it or we're looking at tech strategy. I've, you know, in general, I mean, do you feel like as an industry at whole, at an at a operational level, a business level, do you think we're, we're thinking from a strategic perspective? Um, sometimes it seems because of the abundance of, you know, sole proprietorships, smaller firms, maybe more on the, the architecture side. Uh, but in general, you, you don't hear enough about strat business strategy, um, developing tech strategies, even internally, that's something we've started to preach a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on just the industry as a whole? Like, are we strategic or is that something that's maybe just a new to, to how we run the business? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> it's difficult when you're last in line, right? So as a builder, you know, often we're last in line unless it's design build. Um, so often, right. Um, we are at the, you know, the mercy of our, of, what our clients want. So, and also, you know, you have to think like in the past, a lot of developers kind of stayed in certain market sectors and now we're seeing, you know, developers really want a diverse, more diversified portfolio. Um, but builders, like, I mean, at least for like some of the large firms always want a diverse portfolio. So when you've got a pharmaceutical client who has their company strategy and you want to align with that client to make sure that you're delivering in a way that, 
ensures a future pipeline and a good relationship with them is very different than, you know, a 30 story multifamily rental product and that company's strategy. So it's difficult when you're last in line to build a strategy that kind of meets all your clients' needs. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we've at least, I mean, in my experience, we've always talked about strategy. I'm not sure that in the past we really understood how to approach that well, but now because there's bigger topics globally like sustainability, like right efficiency and bringing certainty to schedule and costs and everything like that, those are things we can definitely strategize around, not just as an individual firm, but as, a, as, a, as an industry. And so now I think we've got solid connection points between um, the different, you know, but it, within our ecosystem that we can all get aligned around. It's interesting because I mean, we work with clients, even not even on strategy, but when we're talking about standards and they're like, oh, well, it all is based on who our customer is. You know, this client wants us to do this. This client wants us to do that. And so it's interesting to think about even creating a business strategy that is flexible enough to sort of adapt to said customer standards or whatever it may be um, it is an interesting thought. And so, you know, it seems like you have focused on whether it was with the, uh, the original VDC group or, or where you are now continually talking about tech strategy. Um, is that something also that you find that, are you seeing that come up more and more? Yes, and actually that's kind of what led me into a BD role was because I realized that in order to keep a pipeline of work coming for my team, I need to go, I needed to sell more, right? And in order to sell, I needed to educate, right? And so having these conversations with our clients about the true value of some of these, you know, you know, innovation. And I don't, when I say innovation, I just don't mean like technology and software and hardware and stuff, right? But like even new processes and everything, but talking to them about the value in a way that is, not, is truly addressing their needs and wants um, and not just ours. We have to stop talking like as a builder, what I find often is like a builder will sell things as if they're selling them to another builder. Um, that education of our clients and, and talking to them about that, because when they set their strategy, right, like we should help inform that. And that's really kind of what led me into this role is I felt like I could go meet with clients and I could convince them of the value of these things where the three of us on this call, right? Like we know it's better to work in a model, right? Like we know that there's efficiencies when we all collaborate early, when the CM is brought in early to collaborate with the architect and the engineers, like we know the value of that, right? And so if we can continue to push that up and educate, that only, I mean, that benefits everybody in the industry. So I know we're gonna talk about the Boost program, but there was another one that I read about that was really interesting and it was Illuminate. Oh, yes. <laughs> So I'm very excited about Illuminate. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's fairly new, um, but from what I read, it aims to provide 100% coordinated construction documents in 30 days. Is that out there? <laughs> I didn't know if that was out there yet. I, I don't knowledge. know. I found it. Um, <laughs> Where'd you get that? <laughs> power of Google. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, you know, reading that, it made me really excited. So I don't know if you can share anything on that, but 
before we sure, get into the boost program lightly uh-huh. <laughs> and right my goal is to be able to sell it to where not only you but but chris likes it as well right as uh, from the design side so um so as a builder we're a builder first and foremost right but we want to affect like all parts of um of the pipeline right um we have actually suffolk capital which is um never to compete with our clients but we might provide like you know, a little bit of equity to get a deal going. And then we have skin in the game and we can, you know, you know, work with our clients to help them get projects going, right? Um, we have Illuminate as our, when we, when we look at a project, right? And we, as a builder, when we look at like, what are the major pain points for us? A lot of that around, is around just the, um, the, like the gaps or, you know, kind of the, the murky parts of, of the design that maybe aren't finished yet. Um, and we have this like cumbersome RFI process. And we all know that if we can get involved earlier um, and collaborate with the design team and, and be like a true team around a project, that it's always a better, you know, always a better experience and a better project for everybody. And one of the ways the industry does that is through design build. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. So Illuminate is our design build business. Um, we have in-house architects in that business. Um, there's a technology component around generative design, but the goal is to really kind of be this um, supportive, you know, connective tissue between the design team and the build team. Um, and to make it a really good seamless process, we focus on design build first because that's where we actually, you know, you know we're, we're running the show as the builder. Um, and then we can start to integrate this technology with our design partners in an effort, right, to not have this kind of siloed back and forth, pass the baton kind of process, but to have true integration with that X equals 30, you know, goal. <clears throat> and beyond that, I'm not sure what I can say yet. So. <laughs> That sounds good to me. No, that, that's interesting because you mentioned, um, so is it Sulfur Capital, but then you also have the Sulfur Technologies, right? So there's like different parts underneath maybe the umbrella company. Yeah, we do. And actually, this is this is one of the, you know, what I was trying to do in little parts and pieces in my last um, tech group, Suffolk has really kind of fully fleshed out and which got me like really excited because we've got this, you know, kind of an elegant flywheel of how innovation works in the business. Um, and so ideas and can bubble up through the business and come externally in the way that we kind of approach the external market is through Suffolk Technologies, which Suffolk Technologies is our venture capital business where we invest in um, like emerging tech in the industry. And that just doesn't mean like contact, it, contact it's, it's any kind of prop tech or any kind of technology that would affect any part of, you know, the real estate build cycle. Um, and so what we have is a boost program, which for lack of a better term is a, like a six week incubator program where we 
I think this, we, we're just kicking off um, our second one. Our first one was last year. Um, I think we had, and forgive me if, I, if I'm botching some of the stats, but you know, nearing 200 applicants. And we narrow those down and we select five and they go through a six week incubator program. And what's great is it's not just with Suffolk, um, that committee is Procore, MIT, Bain Capital, Hilti, Open Space, RxR, uh, Equipment Share, Nine Four um, Ventures, Liberty, and Liberty Mutual. So you have this really diverse group of people available to you as you're trying to solve one of your biggest problems as a tech startup, right? Some of the, your problems might just be like, how do we get customers? Some might be like, how do we scale? Or how do we approach like a new market sector, right? And so what we do is we help over the six weeks, we have set, they have, they can sit with everybody in the group. They have sessions. We bring in, you know, people from Sophic, so actual builders who can kind of help them guide some of this technology. Um, and then, right, we have, they, you know, usually there's there's some funding provided and we have the option to, you know, to be an investor in their business. And so it's it's a great way for us to kind of understand the way the market's going and what's coming and be a part of that and support, you know, um, startups that we feel are going to be successful. Um, and it's a way to also kind of create like an ecosystem within our business with all of our partners around uh, around the emerging tech. And then, so from there, right, we also have, um, and I, we have our construction solutions group. So this is like our piloting group. So we, they work out of a collab space, like a kind of highly technical lab space within all of our offices. And they assist project teams in piloting new tech on their projects. Cause we all know that everything gets pushed to the project teams. Like they have way too much on their plates, right? So this team is able to go out and, you know, pilot new technology. So one of these that we did was open space a while back and really run like a concerted pilot with white, starts with white paper, we've got really good data stats and then we are able to take it from one project to multiple projects, to an office nationally, and then make a decision on, you know, being an investor as well as getting an enterprise agreement around that to get our clients, you know, a better deal. So anybody can put, you know, like a, an app or a software or a tech sticker like on you know their website and their proposals and whatnot. But the difference that we feel here is that the ones that we use are ones that we have fully piloted and vetted and you know hopefully have an enterprise agreement to get a better price for our clients on. What does that process look like? Um, is someone submitting like an idea of hey, this is some technology we should look at? You know, how do you, how does it go from someone's throughout the idea to your piloting it? Um, so a lot of that bubbles up from the project teams, right? So somebody will hear about something, somebody will read something online, somebody will get a call, um, you know, or they their friends using it on a job. A lot of it happens organically. Um, we also do have a data team that'll go out right into the market and kind of scope out kind of what's happening and what's emerging and make suggestions. Um, and then that goes to the construction solutions group and they kind of vet things out and make sure that we don't have a similar solution like in San Diego or in another office already in place. Um, and if it truly is new, they go out, right? They have meetings with this tech provider. They, you know, IT vets them out. We do like a full vetting process. Um, but first, right, we don't want to slow the process down. So to pilot it on one project is not a huge lift. So that you know, collab director will define the pilot, set it up and take it out, run it on a job. 
and collect you know feedback and metrics and everything and then just kind of take it step by step as we go up the chain working really closely with it and with ops it seems like prioritization of like what to do is always one of the bigger um, hurdles during any innovative process. I mean, is there anything internally that you all have sort of landed on as a way to prioritize like what solution we want to pilot versus what we want to just let go? Yeah, that is really difficult, right? Because you have so many kind of competing, um, you know, people, agendas, priorities. Um, We have um, an innovation advisory committee um, so we and I sit on that. It, it's um, one of our newer um, kind of groups where we did feel like the, um, the piloting team was getting a little bit kind of overwhelmed. And because they're so close to the project teams, you know, you want to help your project team. So you don't want to say no. So we have put some kind of, you know, um, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of like a, a last checkpoint kind of authority around that to make sure that what we're piloting matches the company strategy and where we're planning on going and, you know, in the next five, 10 years. Is there a, I mean, cause you know, one of the things I've done a lot of research on innovation, the good, the bad. And, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, we're in the process of implementing just process and we're focused on the culture part right now. Cause I feel like that's the biggest hurdle is developing an innovative culture. So I guess I have two questions, you know, one, what have you seen that sort of stands out as what makes um, you all have an innovative culture, but then at the same time with that committee, I mean, have you allocated budgetary or uh, whether resources or dollars towards, um, you know, pursuing these types of engagements? You are speaking my language because so often the human factor is not factored in, right? It's like, oh, well, this works and this is cool and everybody will just automatically like it and use it and gravitate towards it. And like, that's definitely not the case, right? There's such a huge, the change management portion is such a huge factor in the, you know, whether something's going to take off or whether it's going to fall down. Right. So um, I've always been really passionate about that. um, Making sure that that's the human factor, the change factor, the cultural factor is factored in. Um, (laughs) So um, you know, here, I, so our executive committee and the people, you know, running Suffolk Capital, Suffolk Tech, um, the senior leadership, the executive committee group are, consists of a lot of people from outside the industry. So we've got people from, you know, um, E-Trade and, and um, GE, where innovation has a longer history in those cultures. You know, and I believe that, you know, you can kind of def- define your company values and what you what you want to be, but culture is really made by the people. And so by bringing in leadership that is from outside of the industry who have innovated in those industries and to bring that, that culture that, you know, the way we work, um, you know, into the business really kind of solidifies our values of proven possible wrong, um, you know, like, it gets infused, right? And and I think that that is first and foremost, like like a non-negotiable, like you need that. You can't just kind of put the sticker up on the wall and say, we're gonna be innovative. Um, and then, you know, with change management, um, you know, I'm always trying to be a really kind, like beat the drum, like, how are we gonna talk to people about this? What's the internal sale? What's the external sale? What's the client value prop? Like, yeah, there's great ideas out there, but if you can't 
talk to some people at like at their, you know, like in a way that really resonates with them, it's not going to catch on. So we do have dedicated, I guess, just to, to circle back and answer your question, we believe in it. It is a part of our culture. So we do dedicate resources to it. And I'm sure you guys know, like R&D and, and, and financial, you know, uh, support of these things has always been kind of like a dirty word in our industry, at least from the builder's point standpoint, you know what I mean? Just because what we do is at the margins, we all do it at it is very difficult. So, but we believe in it, right? And it's a part of our culture. It's a decision made at the top level. Um, and, you know, because we're privately held, I think it's easier for us to do that um, than if we were publicly held, to be quite frank. Yeah. And innovation, it can't be a side task. I mean, I, I've seen it where it's, you know, hey, let's, Let's be innovative when we have time available. Um, but it has to really be something that, you know, I was reading a book and it's like every meeting you're in, everything you do, everything, if you want to be an innovative culture, which to some degree, it's a bit of a buzzword, but I mean, it is, it is what it is. You have to live it. And so I've seen that without that, even just having a line on them on a budget is small as that seems, um, it shows that we're being serious. And it seems like you all kind of started to figure that part out, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think, where some cross mentorship in the industry is important and can be really exciting because, you know, as, as we bring in younger people into the business, um, this is how you attract good talent, you know, new talent, um, and you infuse kind of that passion and excitement around you know, innovation and creative thinking and, and think, you know, and, and doing things in a different way. Um, but you do have, you know, the generation that has been building for 30 years, right? And they'll probably remind you of that every week. <laughs> um, but they know how to build. They can look at a set of drawings and in a snap second tell you like that corridor is too long, right? Or you can't build that there. Right, and we need that. And so this is a really great opportunity, I think, at this juncture in time, for us to really foster that kind of cross mentorship of how we create space for, you know, open questions. And then for the senior folks, right, to really just talk about the nuts and bolts, talk about the, you know, how you get things, you know, how you actually build these things and, and have kind of really interesting interactions in that space. And I think all of our companies should figure out how to bring these two groups together as much as possible. I feel like I really, you're starting to see a little bit more in the co-mentorship concept because it is before it was just, you get paired, you're a young professional, you get paired with an older professional, they're your mentor, but mentorship really is a two-way street. And so being able to learn from them and their experience and how to build something and the, the younger professional is just more adept to technology. You know, there a lot of them as coming up now were born with phones in their hand. I mean, they're just used to it. And so finding that balance, I think really ultimately can become a competitive advantage to companies because it's a way of sort of transferring that knowledge effectively. Totally. And my little anecdote about, about that, around that, um, that I try to share with, um, you know, the younger people in the business is, do you know how many executive meeting rooms I got asked to enter because someone couldn't get the tech right? I was, I would never be, you know what I mean? I would never be allowed in that room at that point in my career, but it was like, oh my God, the TV isn't working. The screen isn't working. My PowerPoint isn't working. Hey, Alexis is over there. Hey, Alexis, will you come in? And it was like, oh, absolutely. Right. So, you know what I mean? There's ways to give back that might seem silly or might seem like, you know, like, oh, not my job. But I'm like, there are ways to give back. Um, and have that reciprocal mentorship relationship. And to your point, especially now, right? Like 
you've got all these like younger people who like don't even think twice about tech. It just comes so naturally. So like, that's how you, you know, you make that connection instead of some kind of force, like we're assigning you, right? Just put your hand up, go over, help out. And then you never know what room you might say. They might say, you can stay. Have yep. a seat. <laughs> what, what I really appreciate about what you all are doing is the fact that not only are you um, promoting a culture of innovation internally, but you're also doing it externally to everything that surrounds you. Um, because, you know, building construction and design, it's a team game. Um, you know, we may be in different companies. I was on the subcontractor level, you know, Chris is a designer. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all trying to like accomplish the same goal. And what I like is, you know, construction seems to be, at least when I was in it, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, it's the culture can be very combative sometimes and averse to innovation because like you said, we've been doing it this way for so long, but I really appreciate the fact that you are promoting innovation externally because we're not going to get better as an industry as a whole without going in on this journey together 100%. Yeah, we've got to fix some of the contracts, right? <laughs> that we're all Absolutely. bought in around the same goal. I mean, right? The goal is to build a beautiful building and to all make money. And the best ones are where we all get along, right? But yet the contracts are written to set up such adversarial relationships um, to push risk, right? So, um, I, I got close to doing an IPD job one time and then the contract got converted to a traditional contract, but we were still supposed to operate in IPD light, which is like co-locate, kumbaya, shared, you know, sh shared digital assets and whatnot. But, you know, I'm on, I spent most of my career on the East coast. Um, I know in the West coast, it's a little bit different. So got to figure out how to innovate around these contracts and right. Like the blockchain idea around digital assets, you know, I always say like can we create kind of a safe sandbox where we can play with each other's digital assets without all freaking out that something's changed, right? Same, same idea. So we, it's coming. We got to figure it out. All you brilliant folks out there, please start innovating around that. <laughs> it's interesting because about 10 years ago, I was getting um, a construction management degree and we were, it was focused in IPD and we talked about IPD and we took all the classes about it. And you know, we kept hearing then 10 years ago, they said, Hey, you know, we're close, but the contracts have to catch up. The insurance has to catch up yet. We're, you know, fast forward 10 years and it's kind of the exact same place. And so whether we're talking about how a model becomes the contract documents or what, you know, what we see a lot is we have construction, architecture, engineering firms that are being innovative, but where we're not really innovating is at like the government code official level, you know, or the regulatory body. And at the end of the day, no matter how innovative I am, I still right now to get a permit, I have to produce a set of drawings because that's what they use to check. And so we have to find ways to almost engage, you know, our code officials and engage, um, you know, the claims adjusters and, you know, whoever is establishing the risk so that we can say, hey, what is a way that we can, you know, provide you a model? Do you need training? Do you need, you know, what do you need at this level? Um, and I think until we get to there, where we focus on that aspect, it won't matter what cool stuff we create. We're going to have to dilute it down to that, you know, that level there. You are hundred percent right. I've experienced that where we've delivered models to 
um, you know, governing bodies, municipalities, and it slowed our process down. So we would still create the models, but we would just give them drawings. <laughs> yeah, you know, so yeah. So, I mean, yes, like rah, rah, I'm so on board with that. I don't have a solution, but I'm sure your audience, within your audience, we can start to figure it out. Somebody might. Well, Alexis, we really appreciate you joining us for, uh, for this one. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2021.